0: Well, good morning. Lovely to have a time of worship and hear other people singing. I mean, I say that a lot, but boy, it really is just a special experience to be able to sit up front and hear all your voices, hear all these great voices coming just surrounding us, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, special welcome to those of you watching at home. Uh, I don't know what else to say about that. Thank you for joining us, I guess. (laughs) Uh, When I was a young boy, I don't know how old I was, pretty young, uh, my father took me to a baseball game, and uh, at the game, they were giving away commemorative baseballs, and I got one. And I was uh, excitedly carrying my baseball out into the bright sun of the stadium, and it gleamed so white and clean, I couldn't imagine using it and getting it dirty. So, when I got home, I just put the ball up on a shelf so I could admire it. To my child mind, that ball was holy. It was was too good to be used, just worthy of admiration. Well, that's often how we view holiness, and in some ways, that's how we view God. He's he's high above the earth. He's distant on His throne. We can't approach Him for fear of condemnation. And yet, in examining what the Bible says about holiness, we get a lot more accurate understanding. As the prophet Isaiah was, was given a vision of the Lord, he, he heard angels who surround God proclaiming only one thing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the apostle John confirmed Isaiah's vision, uh, his vision centuries later, telling us that these creatures proclaim God's holiness continually all day and night, just like we sang about a moment ago. Of all the attributes of God that could be used to praise Him, to give Him glory, these angels, they're compelled to offer just one, holiness. Why is holiness so important? Why this attribute above all the others? I mean, after all, we spend a lot of time convincing people that Jesus, He's, he's just like you and me, and, and God is love, and we talk about grace. That's at the heart of what God has done for us. And all those things are true. And Yet, day and night, the angels never stop worshiping the, the triune God by saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What is it about? holiness. Well, this morning we're going to answer that question as we continue our series called Exiles. We've been exploring this book of 1 Peter, and it's such a timely book for us. Our world has changed so dramatically, so quickly. All the things that we used to think, the things we used to take for granted, they've all been changed. And we're left living in a world that's largely unrecognizable, I mean, who would have imagined that, that living in a world where showing up to somebody's house with a package of toilet paper is a really thoughtful gift? <laughs> Everything has changed. We're like a, a little plant just budding out in the desert. The whole landscape has changed around us. And throughout this series, we've been learning what it means for us to be exiles, How do we live as Jesus' followers in a place that is not our home? How do we live in the world when we're not of this world? And so far in this book of 1 Peter, we've seen Peter writing this letter to a group of churches, a group that felt just like we feel, and he identifies them as exiles. He tells them they've been scattered, they've been dispersed, and that's a real challenge for them, and yet that's on purpose. So they could be obedient to God, he tells them. That's their purpose for, for being there, for being exiled in that place. And the same is true for us. We're living as exiles, and yet God has put us here. God chose us to serve Him in the place where we live. So we're exiles, but we're chosen exiles. And last week, we fleshed out that identity even more. We talked about all the things that God has given us, all the good things that God has done for us. He, we, we gained healthy perspective on our identity as Jesus followers, and, and Peter reminds us how God has really tipped the scales in our favor. God's given us new birth. He's given us a living hope, a permanent inheritance, all these other things. And, and really what Peter is doing, he's just reminding us of our identity. He tells us first we're chosen exiles, then he fleshes out that identity in a big way. That's what we talked about last week. And this morning, we're going to see Peter uh, carries on this idea, this identity we have as chosen exiles. Only now, he tells us not just who we are, but how to act. How should we act since this is our identity? And we're going to start looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. I think it's already on the screens there for you. It says this, "'Therefore,' with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy so, this passage starts off with this word, therefore, and you've probably heard the saying that if you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should find out what it's there for. In this case, Peter's really just continuing his argument. He tells us we're new people with a new identity, and therefore, we set our hope. That's how this verse 13 starts. And And this word hope, we talked a lot about hope last week, but, but hope… The way it shows up in the Bible and hope the way it shows up in our world today is quite a bit different. In the world today, hope is really just a synonym for wish. Uh, We say something like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or, oh, I hope that package comes in the mail today, but no real certainty either way. We're just wishing. But that's not the way that, that biblical hope works. Throughout the New Testament, hope describes an assurance of what will happen. Hope is is certain. It's not a wish. And that's because hope in the New Testament, it's based on something that's already happened in the past. Specifically, it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus has been resurrected, then we can have assurance of the future, our future with God. We can have assurance of God's love and care for us right now. He's already demonstrated in the most amazing way possible that God is powerful, God is loving. And God has an eternal plan for us, a plan that goes beyond this life. So this passage starts off by telling us to set our hope on that future. In other words, because we know that God has a plan for us, we can set our hope on that. Whatever happens in this life, it's not going to erase the hope that we have. Jesus' resurrection was just the first of many. We all have hope that this life is not all that there is. This life is just a a dot, but there's an eternal line that that leads from it that goes on forever. We all have that resurrection life to look forward to. That's our hope. So how do we set our hope, as this passage tells us? What does that look like in our lives? Well, the next part of the passage tells us, look at the, the beginning of the passage one more time, verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, Be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So setting our hope, really living out our hope, it's a call to action. And specifically, it's a call to holiness. Be holy. That's the obedient response to all the, the great things we've been given, verses 3 through 12, we talked about last week. That's why this passage starts off with a therefore. Peter is telling us since all these things are true about you, since this is your identity as chosen exiles, therefore act this way be holy. Here's another way to think about it. Last week, we talked about our attitude in times of trouble, how we should think about things. This week, this section is really about our actions in times of trouble. How do we act? Last week was the description of our life as chosen exiles. This week is the prescription. How do we act? Our mind's ready for action, just like this passage tells us. And twice in this opening section, Peter mentions this word, obedience, he tells us God has chosen us to be obedient in verse 2. He calls us obedient children right here in verse 14. So it's our, our, our actions, we want to be obedient. What does that obedience look like? If we are chosen exiles, if that's our identity, if we're setting our hope firmly on what Jesus has secured for us, then what does obedience right now look like? Well, it looks just like this command that's nestled right in the passage. Be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. We set our hope by by living in to all that Jesus has given us. We act in accordance with what He desires for us. That means we act like Him. We're holy. And that word holy, it literally means set apart, just just like that baseball I put up on the high shelf away from all the other baseballs. It means something's been set apart, uh, specifically set apart for God, dedicated to God. So, like you have your regular dishes and you got your fine china and you only pull out the fine china for special occasions, Christmas dinner, whatever. It's set apart for a special purpose. That's kind of the idea of holiness. So, God Himself is holy. He's, he's set apart from all that He created. There's God and there's everything else. He's set apart in an amazing way. And notice in this verse, what's the standard for holiness? It's God Himself. He tells us to be holy like me. He's the standard for what it means to be holy, to be set apart. So we've got to understand that, that holiness, is, it's a part of who God is. The Old Testament tells us there's no one holy like the Lord. Holiness is something that's unique to God. And there's there's God, and there's everything else, all the things He's made. So, He is set apart alone from all that exists in the world, and the whole universe, and all throughout the Old Testament, when God wants to interact with creation, that the place where He does that becomes a holy place, like the the burning bush or, or Mount Sinai, where God gives the Ten Commandments. See, God's holy, He's pure. He can't be in the presence of sin, so He has to purify a place before He can be there. He's completely set apart. He's holy. God is the standard of holiness, and yet here He commands us to be holy. How could we possibly do that? Well, the only way for us to live up to this command is if God helps us. And thanks be to God, He does. He's willing to share His holiness with us. I told you in the Old Testament, when God shows up to a place, He purifies that place. Well, in the New Testament, God doesn't just purify places, He purifies people. In fact, this word holy that appears here in 1 Peter, it's it's often translated holy in the New Testament, but it's also frequently translated as saints. So, a, a person can be holy, a holy saint. And that word saints, it applies to all of us who are Jesus' followers. We're all holy That same characteristic that's the defining trait of God is something that He gives to us. In fact, the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. God chose us. We're chosen exiles. And here we see He chose us to be holy. He desires to share His holiness with us. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why God gives us His Spirit when we become Jesus' followers, so that He, the the Holy Spirit, can guide us into what it means to be holy. God purifies us so that His Spirit can come and dwell in us. So God desires a relationship with us so much that He's made us holy. The biblical word for it is sanctified. God has sanctified us so that He can be with us. And yet there's a, there's a tension here. God has declared us holy, and yet uh, most of the time we don't feel very holy. In fact, we must not be holy all the time, or else Peter wouldn't command us to be holy, right? So somehow we've got to figure out how do we live into this holiness that God has given us? What do we do to experience the holiness that, that, that God has given us? Or maybe a better way to ask the question is this, how do we live in obedience? What actions do we take, just like the passage tells us? Notice twice in this paragraph, Peter tells us to pay attention to our actions, specifically to our conduct. He says it in verse 15, "'Be holy in all your conduct.'" He says it again in verse 17, conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers, as exiles. So we've called the whole series Exiles. Today we want to focus on some of that conduct. We want to focus on how to live as an exile. And I want us to drill down on three distinct ways that we can live as exiles. The first way is to be present to God's presence. Be present to God's presence. If it's true that God loves us so much that He made a way to be with us, then we should make efforts to be with Him. If it's true that the Holy Spirit is always with us, then we should make efforts to be present to His presence in our lives, paying attention to God. That means we realize when God is working in our lives and we respond, that obedience. Now, in a sermon that's all about doing, that's about action, this first action is kind of challenging. I mean, how do you be present to God's presence, right? But throughout the centuries, Jesus' followers have used the practices of spiritual disciplines as a way to engage with God's presence in their lives. And some of these disciplines do involve doing things like Bible study, prayer, things like fasting or communion. These are all active ways that we can be present to God's presence. But even in some other spiritual disciplines, more passive disciplines like silence or solitude, we can still do things that make us aware of God's presence in our lives. One of the gifts this COVID season has brought to us is just the dramatic slowing down of the pace of our lives. Our, our lives are really bent on, on doing, on experiencing as much as we can. We're always on the go. If you got kids, they're always on the go. Or we're always surrounded by just the noise of television and music. We're attached constantly to our phones, right? And all those things can be helpful tools, but they also can be obstacles to help us, uh, to avoid us experiencing God's presence. One discipline that I might challenge all of us to pursue as we seek to live out holiness is simply the discipline of quiet, stopping our activity so that we can contemplate God and His work in our lives, just being quiet in His presence, contemplating His work in us, contemplating His holiness. How does God make Himself known to you? And in that discipline of just just contemplating, just thinking deeply, that act of doing nothing, we find ourselves becoming more aware of God's presence, and then we can respond, we take action. The second action we can take as we live as exiles is we need to be countercultural in our mission. We need to pursue a countercultural mission. And this really means two different. Two different ways this countercultural mission should show up for us. The first way is maybe the most obvious. If we're pursuing holiness, if we're trying to obey God, then we're going to naturally want to be counter to the culture at large. If we're pursuing spiritual disciplines, we're going to find ourselves increasingly at odds with a culture that glorifies sex and violence, a culture that's infatuated with self-love, self-ambition. The more we pursue holiness, the more we're going to be like, Jesus, who was incredibly countercultural, sacrificial love, full of grace, full of mercy. Uh, you no know, doubt heard this idea of cancel culture, this time we're living in where, where one poorly spoken word, one unique opinion can bring swift rebuke, especially on the internet. You're, you're canceled with no ability to dialogue or redeem yourself. Well, needless to say, that's not a biblical idea. Uh, maybe you've even seen the thing going around, I've seen it a few times, about the uh, comparing gospel culture to cancel culture. It says, gospel culture attacks problems and bad ideas, harmful behavior. Gospel culture attacks wrong beliefs, toxic systems, selfish entitlement, abuse, racism, sexism, divisiveness. Cancel culture attacks people. And that's the world we live in today. Well, for us who are Jesus' followers, we want to pursue a, a countercultural mission, countering that, that cancel culture that's, that's consuming our world. And we don't counter it by shouting back. We don't counter it by Facebook rants. We, we pursue a countercultural mission by following in the footsteps of the one who was canceled for our sake. We counter the toxic elements of our culture by speaking out about them while still loving people. And I want to give you one uh, really helpful tool to help you do that. It's a tool called double listening. Now let me explain what double listening is all about. The, the famous pastor, John Stott, maybe you've heard of him, he was once accused of being out of touch with the world. His preaching was top-notch, but he was really not able to connect to people. He'd stopped paying attention to the world. And that's when he developed a practice he calls double listening. Double listening. And double listening is a practice of paying attention to the voice of God through his word, but also paying attention to the voice of people in our world. And he says, these voices will often contradict one another, but our purpose in listening to them both is to discover how they relate to each other. Double listening is indispensable to Christian mission, he says. So, double listening, that's one way we can pursue holiness, we can be countercultural in our mission. And John Stott, he goes on, he clarifies that to practice double listening well, you have to start with double refusal. First, we've got to refuse to be so absorbed in the Word, so absorbed with our Christian subculture that we just escape it, uh, escape to it rather, and we ignore the world. We can't escape. Remember, we're exiles. We're living in a world that's not our home, but that's by God's choice. We're chosen. So we refuse to escape from the world, but we also refuse to get so absorbed in the world that we conform to it. Peter warns against that here in verse 14. So escapism and conformity, they're opposite mistakes, but double listening helps us prevent both of them. So how do you practice double listening? John Stott says one thing he does is he just thinks about popular ideas, popular issues, and he begins to ask questions in his mind. What is it about this idea that makes it so appealing to and you listen, and you learn, and then you understand how the gospel speaks to that particular idea. So, that's double listening. We don't avoid the culture altogether. We don't isolate ourselves, have only Christian friends, but we listen to the culture, and we listen to the Word of God as it speaks to those deep longings of our culture. That's pursuing a countercultural mission. That's one way this idea shows up. We we pursue a countercultural mission, looking to distinguish ourselves from the negative aspects of culture, looking to be agents of change, people who bring holiness into the conversation. That's one way. There's a second way, though, that we can pursue a countercultural mission. Remember, this passage is all about taking action, about being obedient in holiness, and that's something that a lot of churches have really lost sight of. We've replaced obedience with something else. Usually, we replace it with good intentions, but we have put obedience to God below some things that are less critical. When this uh, COVID situation started, we first went into lockdown. My wife and I, we started taking walks together, walking around our neighborhood, and just about every day, we walk. And we walk different places. Sometimes we head north from the house, sometimes south, whatever. And, and one thing that happens, no matter which direction we go, which way we walk away from our house, we pass by a church. There are a lot of churches in town. And as you know, I'm a professional Christian, so I pay attention to these churches, I see them, and I always wonder, what goes on inside that building, and how are they handling this COVID situation? What are they focused on? How are they living out the Great Commission? I think about all this stuff, you know, because Jesus' commission to the church is really centered around obedience, right? Our obedience to make disciples, and we teach those disciples to obey, it all centers around obedience, and I, I understand, I'm not out to badmouth any churches in town. We've said there's plenty of gospel need to go around. We need all these churches. Uh, no one of us can, can meet everything. And, and every church in Walla Walla, they've got their own reputation, things they're known for, this church included. And yet Peter tells all the churches he's writing to, he tells them all that they should be known for the same thing. They should be known for living out holiness, for being obedient. They should all be focused on obedience. So, when I say that we should have a countercultural mission, I mean two things. One, like we said, a mission that's counter to the culture at large, but I also mean we should be on a mission that's counter to a lot of churches today. We should be on a mission of of action, of obedience. I think churches today have have shifted from making obedience what's most important to, to making something else, you know. For some, it might be worship that's the center. The church is all about worship. Some might be chasing after a certain experience. Some kind of Holy Spirit experience becomes the center. For a lot of churches, obedience has been replaced by making doctrine the center, right? We spend a lot of time clarifying what we believe is different from what those guys believe, and man, we don't even associate with those wackos over there, right? And don't get me wrong, doctrine is important I mean, I got a master's degree in theology. That's a lot of sweat, a lot of hard work to prove how important doctrine is. So don't hear me wrong. Doctrine is important. But when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the example of Jesus, His focus is on obedience first. He lived out a countercultural mission even with the religious leaders of His day. He's constantly pointing the, the Pharisees and others away from empty doctrine towards actual heart obedience. The Apostle Paul hits a nail on the head. He tells us knowledge just puffs up, but love builds up. Obedience is what builds the church and what builds up Jesus' followers. Obedience is what's going to transform this valley. So a big piece of what it means to be countercultural in our mission is to actually be on mission, to, to resist the urge to make doctrine or anything else the center and make obedience the center. To actually live out the great commission, obeying Jesus, making disciples who will also obey Jesus. So we're present to God's presence, we're countercultural in our mission, counter to the, the dominant culture at large, and also counter to unhealthy church cultures that sideline obedience in favor of other things. But there's one more practice I want us to focus on. The third practice is we need to be focused on meaningful relationships. That's something we can all always get better at. And and you may notice if your Bible has a footnote or something, you may notice this verse in First Peter, this command to be holy in verse 16. It's actually a quote from another passage. Peter's quoting from Leviticus 19. This command to be holy, it comes from that book of Leviticus originally. And Peter draws from this Old Testament passage to help us understand how to live as exiles because that book of Leviticus, it was also written to God's people who were strangers in a strange land. In fact, if you read a little farther down in Leviticus, you see the same kind of concept, the same identity play out. A little later in Leviticus 19, verse 33 says this, When a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the foreigner who resides with you as the native-born among you. You're to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God tells His people to treat the exiles among them the same way they treat each other. We're to treat even strangers and foreigners like our people. That means we're making meaningful relationships with all kinds of people. As we live here as exiles, we make meaningful relationships, not just with other exiles, but with everyone, all kinds of people. Uh, You might know the name Gladys Aylward. If you're old enough, you might know her from the movie The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, loosely based on her life. Uh, Gladys Aylward, she was a missionary to China. She had a significant mission to China at a very volatile time. She was a missionary to China in the years leading up to World War II, a very dark time in China since the the Japanese had invaded. They were committing all kinds of terrible atrocities, really targeting missionaries, in fact, too. And Gladys, she was uh, British originally from England. She could have left the country. She could have gone back to England to be safe. Her family wrote to her, encouraged her to do just that. She was out there living as an exile, and her family wanted her to come home. But she refused to leave her people, her Chinese people. So she wrote back to her family. She said, no. I'm going to stay. And she told them this. She said, don't wish me out of this or in any way seek to get me out, for I will not go. These are my people. God has given them to me, and I will live or die with them for him and for his glory. These are my people, she said. She she loved these people that God had sent her to. She had countless meaningful relationships, and her relationships went on to change the whole country. As you know, here in a couple of weeks, Pastor Logan will be here. He's going to begin his ministry here at Trinity, and he said uh, several times, he said he wants to spend a lot of time right at the beginning forming meaningful relationships, really getting to know as many folks here as he can. That's fantastic. And as he does that, he's really going to be able to live out his role here at Trinity because his role, the role of, his, of a pastor, comes right out of the Bible. The book of Ephesians tells us that God gives the church pastors in order to equip the saints for work of ministry. That's a big part of his job, my job, Pastor Thad's job, Pastor Edgar's job. We're equipping God's holy people, God's saints, so that you can do the work of ministry. And one way that happens is that you have meaningful relationships with people. You know, because Logan, any person, they're only capable of having so many relationships. But if He's equipping each and every one of us to go be holy and be obedient, then we'll have exponentially more meaningful relationships so we can begin to transform this valley. So as we live out our status as exiles, these are the things we can engage in. We can be present to God's presence. We can be countercultural in our mission, countering the culture at large and countering the culture of, of church complacency that sidelines obedience. And we could form meaningful relationships and ultimately in all this our role is really simple just be who you are god has made us holy and we have the choice to act like it to reflect god to the world we do it in our actions just like peter tells us be holy in all your conduct that holiness comes from our true identity our identity is god's chosen people chosen by him made holy by him Peter simply encourages us to be who we are, to act like the people that God has made us to be. As we wrap up, I want to leave you with one more encouragement. This this call to holiness, this call to, to be who we are, it starts right here, right in this church. Look a little bit down the passage. Verse 22 says this, "'Since you have purified yourselves, you've been made holy by your obedience to the truth.'" So that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. It starts right here, loving one another. Pastor Logan's going to be teaching here in a couple weeks about these biblical commands for one another, loving one another. I don't want to say too much here, but, but let me just encourage you in the same way that Peter encourages us. We live out our holiness starting right here, spurring each other on towards obedience then that starts to show up in our valley. We form meaningful relationships right here and with those who are not yet here and being present to God's presence right here among us. That's when we're going to see Him work and we're going to follow His will right out the doors, ultimately working to be who we are right here and then and, and on and on and beyond. Let me pray for us. God, we are... Uh, so humbled that you would choose to take your holiness and give it away. The thing that sets you apart, the thing that makes you who you are, you are willing to share it with us. It's an incredible act of love and grace. And we don't want it to to be uh, for nothing. We don't want it to go to waste. We want to be obedient to you. We want to step into that holiness. We want to be who you've made us to be, be who we are. And so we pray that you would help us to be continually present to your presence and pray that you would help us to be increasingly countercultural, listening to your word and listening to the words of those people that you created in your image. And I pray that you would uh, give us uh, meaningful relationships, put us in position, even in this COVID season when it's really hard to have interactions with people, Lord, give us meaningful time to be together, knowing that it starts right here, right now. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.